This episode of the Devin Kershaw Show is brought to you by Boulder Nordic Sport. Boulder Nordic Sport offers two full-service brick-and-mortar locations, one in Boulder, Colorado, the other in Portland, Maine. If that's too far for all your cross-country needs, you can check out Boulder Nordic Sport's full-fledged website for online orders and their how-to library. There you'll find how-to videos on glide waxing, kick wax and clister, and other handy topics to make your skiing experience better. BNS is also a go-to for hand-selected skis and stone grinds. You can find out more at bouldernordic.com. This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to The Devin Kershaw Show from Faster Skier. In this episode, during which we take a few liberties to go off topic, we break down the final weekend of World Cup racing from Engadin, Switzerland. We discuss Jesse Diggins' historic overall World Cup title, the retirement of Sophie Caldwell and Simi Hamilton, and yes, the racing. We were honored to have longtime cross-country skier, climate activist, and writer Bill McKibben as our guest. We'll join the conversation as Devin and Bill chat about the glories of Clister and why I'm dressed like I live in an industrial freezer. I mean, I think it's the best classic skiing, honestly. It's just a mess. The problem with Clister is just like dealing with the mess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, someone finally just years ago, I remember someone just said, well, you know what? If you just put it on and then you go ski for... 20 minutes, the sweat in your gloves will just take it all off. And yeah, that's true. That, yeah. <laughs> that's the wax. That's, that's the professional wax text move. It's like they go like this with their hands and then just put gloves in and like, just like pretend it never happened. And then Lord knows what's in those, Lord knows what's in those gloves at the end of a race <laughs> yeah, season. But yeah, but exactly. When you take those gloves off, like you said, you can, you can do pretty much anything. You don't have to worry about dousing your hands in wax remover. Jason, in are you in the, you're in a special Cold room? <laughs> from? No, I just, I have horrible circulation. I don't have, I did not turn the heat on. And this is an office attached to the garage. I did not turn the heat on because I took the luxury this weekend to literally just turn my light on and work from bed. So nice. Yeah, you did. You know what? And you earned that after a full season, after a full race season, there's no, there's no, there's no need to apologize for that. That's for sure. We swear a little bit on this podcast, Bill. Okay. Yes, I'm, I'm well okay. aware. <laughs> and I've given up on the beeping too. I was like, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> no more. Beep. So anyway, it's, the- I'm so sorry. Sudbury, Ontario is a, it's, it's getting a bad rep, but I mean, just travel to Sudbury. You'll know I blame I mean. my dad. Um, <laughs> Sudbury, Sudbury is way, you know, I drove through there a couple of years ago and it's nothing like I remember it as a boy. It was a boy. It was like a moonscape of, you know, not a living tree for miles around. It looked not so bad when I, it looks like it's recovering. Yeah, no, for sure. There's been, uh, I mean, my, my parents are definitely major hippies and like that was a, the re-greening of Sudbury. They've been involved in that my whole life. And as a young kid, like I was out planting a lot of trees with my parents and uh, <laughs> the naturalist societies and the organizations. And, um, but that said, that said, there is just something that happens when you're driving, you're kind of like, it depends which direction you're coming from, but let's say you're coming from the West 
and you're, you know, you're driving down along Lake Superior and then passing Sault Ste. Marie and then Blind River and it starts. And then all of a sudden it's like, what happened, what happened to all the big white pines and yeah. the big jack pines? Like everything just kind of gets, it's, it's like it, honey, I shrunk the kids. Everything just gets miniaturized. And then it's just like a bunch of short birch trees, really. <laughs> There's some maples and stuff. And then you drive too. by the giant nickel and you know what happened. Yeah, the so big nickel. Then you know what happened. Exactly. Vermont has nothing of value underneath the soil. <laughs> it's the best thing that you can happen to you. In what about the marble? Well, there is a giant uh, uh, marble quarry. But there's only one of them. And I, I asked the guy, I remember being over there some years ago in Barrie, and I said to the guy, how, you know, how long can this last? He said, well, at our current rate of extraction, we're good for about the next 5,000 years, he said. So, <laughs> okay. okay, that's manageable. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that manageable. That, that's definitely a lot more sustainable than a lot of other heavy industry. <laughs> well, Bill, thank you. It is a great pleasure to get to join you guys after a long season of listening faithfully to every podcast. I'm I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie, Bill. I, I Jason and I have a lot of the conversations like this. Like I'm a diehard New Yorker reader and I've subscribed to the New Yorker for so many years. And yes, I know it's not really, I guess it's not the most environmentally friendly, but I I, I still get the hard copies sent to wherever I live and they're they're sent to me here in Norway and once a week. It's always a pleasure and um, you're a beautiful writer and the fact that you're going to come on here and talk with a bunch of yakers about Nordic skiing, uh, that's a, it's a huge honor. So it's great to have you with us and I'm sorry in advance if things get a little... Uh, the honor is all mine, guys. I, I sort of preface, you know, I, I, I chatted with Bill a little bit uh, just to get, I was like, hey, you know, remember, we're usually burning fumes he has two small kids. I have two older kids, but they're not out of the house yet. One is almost out of the house. Lovely child, though. And, um, you know, we're writing race reports or I'm writing race reports, blah, blah, blah. So I feel like the end product is finally finished and polished in our own unique way. So welcome to whatever will manifest in the next like 45 minutes. Bill, first off, like maybe give a little bit of, you know, I, I'm sure people who read Faster Skeeter know about you and your your work, but maybe a little bit about your love affair with and for cross-country skiing, just to kind of set some context for us. Well, sure. And first of all, let me just say in all seriousness, such thanks to you guys for, for great coverage. The last couple of years listening to this show have been really wonderful. Um, and, and especially this year, because you know, we're, we're, we're now watching, at least I'm watching all of the cross country ski races on this strange feed that comes across something called Peacock. And it seems to be just the fist feed with no words at all. And, you know, it's like watching uh, silent movies from the twenties or something. <laughs> um, so it's great to have the soundtrack come in later in the day and find out, you know, what, what was, um, so I, you know, I, uh, the one sport that I've always been in love with since I was a kid was cross-country skiing. Uh, and, you know, there just are certain things that are um, that I think each body in the world is kind of cut out to do. And for whatever reason, the, the kind of the rhythm, especially of classic skiing, has always been the most beautiful thing in the world for me. Um, and and uh, some years ago, I guess now almost 20 years ago, I took a year off from failing to save the world, uh, my usual work on climate change, and spent a year just writing a book about sort of training with the, uh, some of the best skiers in America. Uh, 
um, uh, and, and what it was like. It was an odd year because it coincided with the uh, death of my father. And so those became the twin narratives of the book. But by the time I was done, I was actually in, in the best shape I'd ever been in. And I've more or less stayed there since, um, just kept, you know, that taught me how to, you know, started doing masters racing and things like that. And, and then moved here to, to Middlebury in Vermont and became the um, faculty advisor for years to the Nordic ski team, not the coach, I hasten to add. Uh, they have good coaches, but the faculty advisor, which is not a very important position if you're disciplined enough to be a you know, classic skier at Middlebury, you're disciplined enough to get your homework done too. Uh, so mainly just getting to go and, and cheer them on. Uh, but that's been, that was great fun for the years that I did it. And, and I still keep my, um, my, you know, keep my eye on them. Uh, I, I was very happy to see Devin at World Juniors this year that if, if Middlebury had been a nation of its own, uh, it would have done all right in a couple oh, of those yeah. races. Lockley and Lawson uh, were uh, killing it for the ladies in uh, some of those races. And I will also add that it's been, uh, Dev and I were just talking about this, it's been an amazing winter here in Ripton. Thank God the pandemic winter we needed, just snow on the ground the whole time and never warmed up in beautiful skiing. And because the Middlebury College team hasn't been able to, you know, race, uh, our, our our coach, uh, Andrew Johnson, has been driving the groomer at, uh, at uh, Rikert, at Breadloaf, at the Touring College Touring Center. So we've had Olympic class tracks all year, too. It's been, uh, and, it's, and it's great fun to look up in the groomer and see uh, AJ driving by. So, you know, Devin, it's not exactly Sistian, but if you were looking for the, the Nordsetter Sistian of, of Vermont, you could do worse than the Ripton Goshen Plateau up here. Uh, it's really been a terrific, terrific skiing winter. Oh, that's great to hear. And I think it's so funny to, to hear your comments about AJ because like, in my mind, because AJ is like Andrew Johnson, the coach at Middlebury. Um, he's only a few years older than me. And uh, I mean, he, he was definitely somebody I looked up to as a young athlete, especially his skate technique at that time was was some of the best in the U S and, and, uh, so I, I follow him on social media a, li a little bit. And then some of the pictures I've seen him like grooming the tracks. And I think that's what makes, well, there's a lot of reasons why I fell in love with cross country skiing and continue to love cross country skiing. But I think, I think that community, that community building, like how a young athlete that, that like an Olympian, like Andrew Johnson, of course, he's given, he's given his, uh, he's given his career now to, to coaching the next generation of, of hopefuls at Middlebury. But, it's more than just coaching the next generation. He's out there, like you said, preparing the tracks for everybody to enjoy. And then the pictures and the, the pride he takes, I can just see the pride he takes and just like land down some sweet corduroy. And um, so it, it takes, it takes a, uh, yeah, it takes people like that to, to advance uh, the American ski community and Canada. And, and, you know, even here in Norway too, of course, I mean, uh, everybody thinks that, well, people are born with skis in their feet pretty much, but, it takes really passionate community members so that we can all enjoy uh, some, is, some nice winter days. It is just a small enough world to really be uh, uh, sort of uh, understandable. I mean, it's fun to watch because AJ still skis pretty fast too. He was doing, I watched him the, last weekend, he was doing the virtual Birkebeiner and screaming by on classic skis. He and Andrew Gardner, uh, who was the coach here for many years and is still skiing fast too. But I was out this morning, you know, I, I, I 
I haven't seen the whole, I just sort of fast forwarded through the men's race because I wanted to go skiing. And it was wonderful to be out on the tracks at Breadloaf in part because, you know, this should have been uh, Simi Hamilton's last race today and Sophie Caldwell's. Uh, and they were both in the hotel, I think, uh, yeah. uh, um, with a, what seems to be a false positive <laughs> uh, COVID test. But it was really fun to just think back to watching Simi as an uh, undergraduate uh, learning to ski, and then what a long, beautiful career he's had. I mean, I, you're the guy with the fist record book in your head, but I think he's the only American male to actually have won World Cups in sprint. Yeah, in that's true. Years. Yeah, um, maybe since the Coke era, almost. Um, you know, Sophie, you guys did a wonderful job of bidding adieu to to Sadie last week, but Sophie's had just magnificent career. And, and, and of course, you know, uh, from the first family of American skiing, uh, it's been fun listening to Zach on your podcast, because he's from the kind of uh, the, the, the other arm of the called with a kind of acerbic arm of <laughs> Caldwell, <laughs> Caldwell clan. Uh, but Sophie's from the, you know, from the serene. I mean, there's just nobody that's more fun to watch glide by with, uh, you know, just magnificent technique and a smile on her face, a kind of quiet smile. And so just to think about, just to get to go out and ski and think about watching them as kids, you know, in these same trails. And it's a wonderful sport for the way that it passes on through time um, in place year after year after year. Absolutely. You buried the lead, Bill. You buried the lead. We're going to definitely, uh, we're definitely going to give a major, not just shout out, but um, I, I couldn't agree more. Simi and Sophie are both fantastic people and wonderful racers and historic racers for the U.S. and, and leaders, like real leaders in the ski community. So we are definitely going to swing back on that. And I do have to say that because I've been, I've been uh, sending, I, I sent a message to Sophie and uh, she, she responded and you know, there was the last I had heard, Bill, because you're the academic advisor, you're also going to be pretty happy to hear 12 years late, Simi Hamilton is now a college grad. <laughs> so, that's, you know what? what he was saying. He's got his you know last what? credits. Yeah, exactly. In. Exactly, Bill. So as an academic advisor, you can be proud. Absolutely. Not only did the guy win World Cups, but you taught him the virtue and the beauty of patience. He's, and not only is he leaving as a World Cup winner for the U.S. of A. and the men's side of things, which is something that not many American men can say in cross-country skiing, he's also a college graduate. A college so, yeah, exactly. That's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So, but also exciting is um, like we normally do, we're going to break down the weekend a little bit, but for sure there's some, there's some narratives. And the biggest ones, of course, is, is Sophie and Simi um, bidding farewell to high-level racing and starting the next chapter of their life. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Of course, Jesse Diggins, you had a great piece in the New Yorker. Of course I've read it because <laughs> um, I should be studying extra, like human physiology, but I'm a great procrastinator. Um, it is truly historic what Jesse was able to do it. And, and this is, you know, now we can finally, you know, drink the champagne that has been on ice for the last month. Um, the writing was on the wall. Jesse was going to win the, the overall world cup. Once she won the tour to ski, it was, pretty much in the bag but you can never say never there's strange things happen um but uh this year jesse did something truly historic and i know the american ski fans know about how historic that is and i know i repeat myself too much but you gotta think 
international cross country skiing, if you want to say the start of it. And it, it, I know Holman Cole and Vassalop, but that started earlier. But 1924, with the first Winter Olympics, cross country skiing was involved with that first Winter Olympics. So we're talking almost 100 years, 97 years of international cross country skiing. And finally, a American woman hoists the highest prize outside of a championship gold medal, or I would you know, we can get into that, but like for me, I think like winning the overall world cup is just such an amazingly difficult feat. And Jesse Diggins has done it this year. And I, I mean, it couldn't have, what a great ambassador for the sport and, and, uh, what a truly huge achievement. So we're going to talk about that. And then there was two races this weekend. There was a 10 and 15 K classic mass start in one of my favorite places to ski on planet earth, the Engadine Valley in, in Switzerland. We can talk a bit about some awesome loops there for when the COVID pandemic ends and people are itching to go somewhere beautiful to go cross-country skiing. Definitely, uh, Angadine, you could do worse by Angadine. Hopefully, you've saved some money in these <laughs> pandemic stunts because it ain't cheap over there, but it's some nice skiing. And then today was a, a really kind of weird event, but for people that maybe not know, is, is the Angadine Ski Marathon, Is this, it's it's it started as a classic event and now has switched to skating for the last few decades. And and it's usually, it's under 50K. It's not usually 50K. It's just over the marathon distance usually. Um, but today they did it as a pursuit race, which I thought was kind of neat. Although, of course, everyone was going to come together because it's a flat course through the valley. But uh, we'll, we'll touch base and just kind of break down the highlights of the 30K for the women. And hey, the I, I have a quick question. And maybe today. it's not a quick one, but I, I'm curious, you know, Bill, I think I mentioned this to you earlier. I was like, gosh, you know, when's Bill going to write about Diggins or something about like this funky season. And she's obviously having a historic run. Um, and then again, like I told you, I kind of scanned my phone really quickly this morning and saw that Matt Wickham had tweeted or retweeted your tweet or some iteration of that about your New Yorker piece. Um, totally kind of like more writing related when you pitch a story like that, <laughs> What's the hierarchy? Well, I mean, in this case, you know, I mean, I write for, I write a newsletter about climate change for the New Yorker every week. They're happy to indulge me once in a while. I, you know, I think it would have been, um, it's one of the few times in the course of, uh, when, when you're able to get Nordic skiing into the, uh, you know, out in front. Um, I did actually wrote a similar piece a couple of years ago after the gold medal. Uh, there's only a few moments when you can get Americans' attention on this, but this was a, one of those occasions that deserved to be um, deserved to be noticed. And I was really glad. I, I thought Matt, Matt, who uh, who about whom it strikes me not enough good things can possibly be said. Oh, he's the best. Uh, he's. I mean, having watched lots of coaches and things over the years, he just seems to have hit on a different Zen way of doing this that really works and, um, you know, treating people like adults and figuring out how to have fun and uh, it just, but Matt, Matt's quote for the New Yorker article was just that the thing about Jesse was not just that she'd won, but that how'd she won, that her, uh, that her particular superpower in the world was just this ability to endure pain at a level that no one else could match. And that really is true. She obviously, you know, no one has the uh, uh, cadence and engine that Johag has and 
the Swedes are magnificently beautiful to watch as they glide by and so on. But there is something uh, absolutely, and, and it's uh, and, and there's a kind of a, has a kind of uh, American uh, quality to it. Just the kind of I'm going to I'm going to I have more grit than you can match. Um, um, I'm going to willing to hurt more than you can hurt. It, it is hilarious that when you show people this sport for the first time, when I have friends over and make them watch races on uh, TV, so they actually get into it in, in, until you get to the end. Everybody's there just lying on the snow looking. I mean, and you, and you sort of realize that there's no other sport in the world where this happens, where like people routinely put themselves in this kind of pain that, you know, you don't end nobody ends the, you know, the end of the Super Bowl, they're all running around hugging each other and talking about <laughs> going to Disney World and whatever. You know, Tom Brady's not like lying on the gridiron, uh, you know, panting with his chest heaving up and down, looking like he's about to puke, you know. So it is an odd sport. And she is its exemplar, it seems to me, in a lot of ways. No, oh, absolutely. And she does, she does epitomize that American spirit. I mean, I'm Canadian. So, uh, um, and you know, we're just the hat, we're just, we're just the, we're just the hat of, of the U.S. Um, um, <laughs> of course, but I'm just kidding. Um, at least we have free healthcare. Ayo, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, not just kidding. That's true. Um, but the fact is, you're absolutely right. It, it, Jesse epitomizes grit, and that that is uh, that is absolutely true. And and like I've said a little bit on on the podcast here with Jason before, is is that ability to push? It is it is incredibly. I mean, it's it's the hardest cardiovascular sport in the world because you're using your entire body to propel yourself through time and space, through the woods, <laughs> over snow, and. And Jesse routinely, and that's the thing, like Alex and I have had so many conversations about that where it's like, you know, we, we can hurt and we can push. And I mean, we made our careers on that, but, but Jesse, it's just like good race, bad race. She goes to the well every time and, and then perseverance she, pays. And now she's got the globe. And done all that incredibly painful work then in, and given the way most race courses are designed, she somehow has she somehow has the ability to come down steep hills in oh, yeah. a kilometer legs of rubber, but picking up, picking up seconds by cutting corners. I mean, it's, Oh yeah. That, She's a great descender. That technical ability does seem, I mean, uh, that's the place where she seems the match of the Scandinavians. Oh, that. absolutely. She's better. She's better than anyone else in the world on the women's field. Anyway, when it comes to descending, no one descends better on the women's side of things than Jesse Diggins. And on the men's side, of course, yeah, the, the best descender in the world is Johannes Klebo, no question, uh, right now. Uh, and uh, But there is some parallels to be drawn there. You're absolutely right. And, and, you know, especially on courses early in the season, like she's just such a super champ with toe block. And toe block, the course in toe block is, is like I've said before, is like fairly gradual. So you have to kind of hold your speed up and carry speed through the corners. And, you know, even though everyone knows that Jesse's the master, no one can match her. Every year after year, they've had every opportunity to try and learn, learn from the master and, and beat her at her own game. But she still remains a step ahead. So it's, it's super impressive. Jason, can I ask a question, a sort of season-ending uh, kind of question um, that I'm curious about? As long as we've got Devin to, uh, and I know you guys talked about all this last week about the end of the 50k at World Championships and stuff. But I imagine there's been uh, 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 some, some. I imagine there's been some ongoing discussion in the Norwegian press in the last week that I can't 
translate and read. But, but I'm sort of curious about that. But I'm also just sort of curious as this season comes to an end, um, Devin, you've been saying uh, over and over again, correctly, I guess, in the last year that Bolshinov is the best skier in the world and so on and so forth. But uh, over the last month or so, um, I mean, it seems like it's been a really interesting moment. Uh, Clybo showed up and, and were it not for the vagaries of FIS would have had four gold medals at the world championships. Uh, uh, it feels like, I mean, it actually feels like a wonderful, like, like the, this sort of um, world wrestling um, kind of moment for, for Nordic skiing because Bolshinov, at least on, uh, on our TV screens, emerges as the great heel of all time, you know, I mean, we've started calling him, my wife and I have started calling him uh, bad sports enough, um, <laughs> you know, watching him come across three lane oh, yeah. traffic and then not content with that to skip out of the last lane of traffic and move into whatever the next zone is in order to push Clybo over the V boards and still have Johannes scoot by. I mean, it, it, I, I, I know that it's all taken extraordinarily seriously in Norway and everyone's I'm sure been, but, but it's been great fun to watch um, uh, in kind of drama terms. And it does feel like, uh, like Clybo is definitely giving Bolshinov a run for his money as the, best skier pound for pound that we've ever seen. Yeah, so so let me just recap in like 20 seconds here. Men's 50K Mass Start Classic from World Champs. It comes down to Klebo and Bolshinov coming around the final turn. Bolshinov looks like he's got just a wee bit of real estate on Klebo. Yeah, I'm going to use the word drifts, but Bolshinov drifts a little wide. I'm sure I'll get some hate mail for that, but bring it. Um... <laughs> But that said, you'd get a ticket, that's for sure. Well, yeah, Klebu gets DQ'd. Um, the Norwegian Ski Federation files an appeal, and Klebu asks him to drop it. So that's sort of case closed at this point is Everson gets gold, Bolshinov silver, and Kruger, who won today's race, I think bronze. What is sort of the, the buzz in Norway at this point, sort of over and done with? Not, yeah, yes and no. I mean, you know what? A lot of people were very... A lot of people were surprised, first and foremost, that Claybo decided to pull pull the appeal because, I mean, I mean, of course, you got when you're the the, the home crowd always roots for the home team. Um, but that said, like when you keep revisiting that, had that appeal gone forward, it, man, it's it's hard to think that he should have been DQ'd. I mean, honestly, um, both both made mistakes. Like both both athletes athletes made mistakes or not mistakes. Actually, I, I don't even want to say mistakes because it was a race incident. I mean both athletes took a risk to win the 50 K gold and it blew up in both their faces. Um, that said, people were really like expecting this appeal. And they're like, of course, Claybo's going to appeal. And you know what? He's gotten a lot of respect and it was a, it sounds funny, but like it was a seriously classy move from Claybo. And we're forgetting that the kid's 24 years old. So you, you talk about Bolshinov and like, He's a beautiful skier. He, he is incredibly talented. He's incredibly fit. But Bolshinov, like you said, like every weekend there's something. Like Gleb Rativik in the team sprint, who is a full-on sprinter while conditions and who is tall and heavy while conditions turn to mush, he's not going to have a chance against the guys he's competing against. It blows up, comes third, 
when Bolshinov gave him a lead in the team sprint. This is at World Championships I'm talking about. And Bolshinov just leaves him in the snow. Doesn't go in there, pat him on the back, like, fuck this guy. And that's his teammate. Like, it's crazy. It's crazy. And then, of course, in the 50K, doesn't put okay, D, DQ for, for, for Claybo, doesn't put a silver medal on. Doesn't even put a silver medal around his, around his neck. Um, you know, the whole Johnny Mackey disaster of the relay back in, in Lati, the World Cup there. So, so for sure, he is the bad boy of skiing right now, no question. Whereas Claybo, yeah, he is kind of the white knight. And, every, and But at the same time, like in Norway, people really feel as though like he was robbed of that fourth gold medal. And yes, he, he took a risk. It was borderline. And the DQ was heavy-handed. That said, when he came out and said, I've asked the team to drop the appeal and I want to move on, that is such a classy move. And the reason why the reason why this is not just what I think this is what's been written about him too is what people don't really understand is like it, it just seems so it just seems so obvious like oh yeah well Claybo's just going to get another chance he'll just keep winning 50ks and it, it, he's 24 he'll win for 10 more years or, or Bolshinov or all these guys it's like that's not exactly how this works the day will come where it's done and you don't know when a beautiful race like that happens like I look back to Alex you know like Alex and Lati. He was in phenomenal shape. He had just switched to Solomon, Solomon skis in that it was super icy. We've never seen court, uh, like conditions like that. They didn't groom the night before because it'd been such a mess um, because of warm conditions. And they were worried it was just going to turn to like 10 inches of sugar. So they didn't groom. So it was like very, very icy. And I was on Fisher and a lot of Fisher athletes were slipping all over the place. And Solomon skis on that terrain were just able to, you be able to hold your technique together and, all the top Solomon athletes were in the top 10. Alex had his best day and he wins, but he has one world championship gold, right? Like, of course he wanted to win the next year too, in the 50 K in, in Pyeongchang. That's what we trained together for. That's what his goal was. And he was fourth and then career over, you know, and then the 50 K in uh, Seyfeld didn't go his way whatsoever. And so you, while it seems foretold that, that Claybo's going to get all these other chances. You just never know. And it was a beautiful race, the best distance race of Claybo's whole. Wow, that pursuit also, Jason, that we keep talking about in in, <laughs> in yeah, Lillehammer. It's a great race. Yeah, that in 2000, in 2017 was pretty crazy. But the fact of the matter is, you just never know if you're going to get those chances again. And and it was well, a very incredibly classy. It does feel way like, to do it. I it don't does know. Feel like it uh, when when he dropped the appeal, it was a classy thing, and it kind of. Moved him a little bit out of the, uh, you know, Northug, uh, yeah, oh yeah, Emma boy kind of skier mode into the kind of Allsgard, Olvang, yeah, totally, uh, Dolly, you know, Norwegian stoic hero mode. Um, Absolutely, yeah, and, and it is, and and the way the way he, what he wrote and what he had talked, what he said to the press about, like, I congratulate um Everson and we should celebrate him as the world champion and all that and then Everson of course coming back they're both from Trondelag and anyone that knows anything about Norway is that region I guess you could let's call it a state it's not exactly like a state of course but it, it like uh, around Trondheim is called Trondelag and uh Klebo is from Trondheim which is the biggest city in this state and um Emily Everson is from Marocker which is an hour 15 away and they're they're good friends and they're both from there and there's no prouder state in all of Norway than Trondelag, especially when it comes to skiing. And uh, so there was a lot of love back and forth. So it, it, it's incredibly classy and yeah, it, they're, they're moving on, but I mean, I, I'm still conflicted a little bit about it because, you know, like I, I really hope in two years when the 50 K classic is back into 20, 
23 that Claybo has another beautiful performance like that in skate next year in Beijing. There's no way in hell Johannes Claybo is winning a gold medal in the 50 K skate in the Olympics in Beijing at 1800 meters. No chance, but the year after in classic, I think he can do it again. And, and I hope he does. And that'd be a beautiful story. I will just add re Bolshanov that for those of us who care about climate change, the fact that every time you see him, he's advertising an oil company across the path <laughs> makes it all the, all the better when he gets beaten. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I, you got to feel bad for those athletes because you know they have no say yeah, I know. with anything in their life. But yeah, it, it's a it's a nice it's a it's a it's a funny parallel though. That's for sure. I, I want to ask a question, Bill and and Devin. I'd like your perspective on this too because I've, I've been thinking a lot about this. You know, we had. Um, a person based in Duluth, Pasha Khan, write a three-part series on Bolshinov to give people a better idea of like, who is this guy? And I'd like to think that just as humans, that we have an ability over time to kind of uh, see see the good in, in most people. Obviously, historically, there are some people it's like, yeah, you're disqualified from being comforted by humanity. So I won't go into that list. But, but that said, you know, what are some sort of maybe from literature or anything that that we can appeal in some capacity to a Bolshinov. You know, he's from a totally different culture than the U.S. and certainly Canada. Um, there are different struggles there and different means for some families, right? How do we go about or how should we go about perceiving a character like Bolshinov, who, if you're a cross-country fan, is going to be front and center probably for you know, another Olympic cycle after Beijing. I mean, I can start with that. And just by saying like, you're absolutely right. They are from a different culture. And I give him actually like quite a few passes because of the fact that he's 24 years old. You know, like if he was carrying on the way he carries on, okay, there's no pass for what happened in Lati, but he also finally, it took him a little bit of time, but he came around and he said, I will never act like that again. And, and he hasn't yet. And that's good because that was a miss. Um, it took a while for him to swing back around, but he did. And, but the fact of the matter is, you know, he's 24 years old and he's, he's thrust in, I, I also feel for him in the sense that he's thrust into this, like this, this environment that, that it's six or like five, six Norwegians against one Bolshinov every single time. And it, man, oh man, like I live in Norway and I know some of the guys, so I cheer for the Norwegian guys when, when it's in that situation. But when I step back a little bit, you gotta, you gotta give the guy a lot of credit for the fact that like he's able to go toe to toe. And right now I'm, so, I wanted to talk about this a little later in the podcast too, that like we have a, we have a serious issue in men's cross country skiing right now that needs to be solved because never in the history of cross country skiing has it been just Norway plus one or two Russians and no one else is competing and we can get back to that. But so I just think like he is vilified because he just, he's made some really stupid decisions lately. <laughs> um, some of which he's apologized for and others, he is young, really young. And while he is the best skier in the world right now, um, you know, he, he, you can't forget. Yeah. That he, he just, ha he doesn't have like, a breadth of experience behind him here. And the, the, so the only thing that grates me with Bolshinov is, you know, it, because he, like I said, beautiful technician, super strong, hardworking. Um, his backstory is, is, is amazing really. And any Russian, any Russian that wins at that level that comes from humble beginnings like that is a great narrative. And it's so impressive because Russia is an incredibly deep, 
field. There's a lot of cross country skiers and it's hard to make it to the top and Bolshinov has, and it's, it's to be applauded and impressive. The only thing, the only thing that gives me pause again, like I've said before, is his coach Bordovko, who's been involved in so many doping positives. And that's the only thing that I think stops me from like really cheering from the rooftops for a guy for like Bolshinov. But personally for him, yeah, I mean, and also too, like we're North American. I grew up with like Canada versus Russia in hockey. And you, I mean, like, I'm not going to cheer for the Russian team in hockey. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so it's kind of hard for me to cheer for the Russian skier too. But uh, Bolshinov specifically has, I do feel for him in a sense, like every weekend from like, not just one Norwegian, but it's like an armada. Like you, you close, you know, you, you're matching one guy, you're matching Kruger, you're watching Holland and then around on your left goes Goldberg. And you're like, what the hell? Like, it's hard to keep track of all that. He is. I'm the old guy here. So let me say there is something wonderful about watching. It feels like when you're watching him that you're looking back about 15 or 20 years in skiing uh, history because um, he looks like the way that people like Dolly or somebody used to ski the long, strong push on that classic ski is beautiful to watch. I've spent some time in Russia over the years and um, and 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 like Russia and Russians a good deal. And I also know that it's a tough place to be an tough place to be anything because they're, I mean, I don't think they're that interested in stories or dramas or anything else. They're interested in winning uh, and winning only. And if you don't, then you're, you know, forget it, you're out. Um, And, and so, you know, that's difficult too, but it is some, it's so it's wonderful that there's that there is this storyline uh, that we'll have for years to come. Because otherwise, yeah, I mean, I mean the Norwegian and, and I mean I was watching this weekend on my TV and all of a sudden there's you know up at the front of the race there's all these new Norwegians that I've never even heard of before who are <laughs> hope and stop <laughs> and all these guys are suddenly like, oh, come on I mean it's not even fair you know. Um, so it's, so you're right. That's, uh, it, it's, it's a very good thing that Bolshinov is there. And I did see him giving a big spasiba to Pellegrino, uh, uh, before the sprint podium. And then I don't know whether you guys, since you, since you have actual TV and aren't just watching the fist feed, but it was great fun to watch, uh, Pellegrino get his medal and the and 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 the entire Italian staff there singing the Italian national anthem even after the music had stopped they sang the next verse so uh, it does feel like Pellegrino's time may have passed but he uh, it was great that he got one last globe and uh, and um, and it was uh, and he looked like he was on the edge of tears too so lots and lots of good storylines all year long. In fact, COVID made it a better year in terms of storylines, just because there were more people coming in and out and, you know, things happening and, and so on. It would have been kind of dull if all year long it had just been Yohag by a mile and that was that. <laughs> no, for sure. And I mean, Yohag, at least she's competing in the women's field, which, which has been exciting because at least there's nations competing uh although yohug just wins everything else <laughs> every distance race but but on the men's side of things i totally agree like pellegrino while you'd look and you'd be like well you know like clay was the best sprinter that ever lived and he would have won the globe easily and volness would have been second in the in the sprint standings easily so it's by consolation but at least if it's going to be quote unquote by consolation it's one of the greatest sprinters 
the best, the most accomplished Italian cross country skier in history. And he gets, like you said, one last hurrah. So in the sprint globe, and it, it was, it was, it was great to see Pellegrino grab that. And then Lampich also, you know how much of a fan I am of Lampich, Slovenia, small country, beautiful skier, beautiful classic skier, uh, specifically gets her, uh, gets the, the sprint globe. She was in that hunt last year in that really tight race with Lynn Svon and then Minnesota and, and Quebec, they got canceled. So the globe went to Lynn Svon of Sweden last year and Lampich this year, securing the globe for the sprint was, uh, was great. Was, was, was awesome to see. And, but I agree with you, like the, the narrative part, the narratives of it. And I mean, that, that you can't take anything away from it. I mean, like Rosie Brennan, like we talked about Jason, there was one athlete that couldn't have the weekend she had. That was Eb Anderson. Eb Anderson did have that weekend. She was fantastic on the podium both days. And that knocked Rosie Brennan off the top three in the overall World Cup standings. But if you are top five in the overall World Cup standings, like let's all just take a little break, breathe deeply. And I'm sure Rosie's a little disappointed because being top three in the overall World Cup standings, that's that's incredible. I mean, Jesse's been top three in the overall World Cup standings for the USA for the women's side. So is Keegan Randall. They're the only two in 97 years. And Rosie almost added her name to that list after just a phenomenal breakthrough season as a 32-year-old. And she fell short right at the last weekend. But come on, like hats off to Rosie Brennan, hats off to Eric Flora, hats off to APU and Rosie herself. Um, never stop believing. Talk about grit, Bill. I mean, yeah. that, that, that is a, that's a gritty athlete. Yeah, it's, so that's been, a, that's been a great narrative. And yeah, it would have been really nice to see her up there on the overall World Cup podium up there with Jesse too. That would have been just such a storybook ending to already a storybook season for the U.S. team. But um, you know what? I think Rosie has had has been such an inspiration for a lot of athletes that have, are grinding away. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of athletes out there that are grinding away and are hoping for that breakthrough year and they still believe and they're up against a lot of naysayers in North America. And that's a bit of a difference than in Scandinavia. We're not quite as supportive uh, through and through like as athletes age then the then there's like that low chatter starts happening. It's like, when are they just going like to give it up? Like, is this really going to happen? And I thought it was really cool that Rose is like, it happened. I'm 32. I some world cup weekends. I won back-to-back races and I finished top five in the overall world cup standings. Like pff, hats off. That was awesome. And she did it with a good, big grin too. It was fun to watch. Yeah. Her. And I will add that you're uh, it's true. We've been talking about the men's side about how it's all the, the Norwegians and Russians. But clearly, your November and December uh, uh, castigations of the Swedish <laughs> male skiing team were uh, were heard someplace, and they got themselves together. It was very good to end the year with a Swede standing on the podium. So there you go. Oh, for sure. And it, and and not just that. For the listeners, I'm sure people have watched that listen to this pod, pod, podcast or seen some of the highlights. Jens Berman goes with the finishing move in the 50K today, which was led by Holland. Of course, we talk about this, Jason, all the time. It's Holland and Kruger or Bolshinov that makes every single move or like the work in a mass start race for the men. This time, Bolshinov ran out of steam a little bit. He was a little unhappy about his skis, didn't think his skis were working that well. It was kind of tough conditions today, uh, a little colder, windy. Uh, regardless, Holland and Kruger get the gap they need at 2.5K to go in the 50K today. And... Jens Berman's able to go with that move. And it, I was like, that was so exciting for me watching that. Cause I'm like, come on, man. Cause you could see like Bolshinov's legs turned to lead. Claybo's legs turned to lead on that climb. And Berman's legs were so close. They were like this close to locking completely up compared to Kruger and, and Holland that looked super, kept their technique together, but he just held on 
gets his first career podium. Like you said, Bill, Sweden now can look back on the season and hopefully, please God, build from this because you have a star in the making with, with, uh, with Poroma. And I know I've said that all year and you guys laugh, everyone laughs at me about that, but like, dude, the kid, the kid was top 10 again. It's a 50 K skate pursuit. He get everyone's going to come back in that field. If anybody wants to know how the 50 K, if everyone thought anyone was going to stay out ahead in a 50 K skate <laughs> on flat terrain, they don't know skiing. Every, those, those, that field is going to come back together. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of guys that came back together to that field and Poroma snuck in there for ninth. Great racing by uh, Scott Patterson again. Great racing by Norris. The, the, the blue collar boys, the U.S. skiing, uh, a great way to finish the season. I'm sure they were looking for a little more, but there's absolutely nothing to sneer at at the end of a long, tough season. Oh, and, Schumacher and Gus Schumacher, was, too. And Gus, yeah, yeah. Schumacher was 20th. Yeah. Yeah, and Gus, too. And that was a tough – I mean, he's a first-year senior. 50K is a long way to go, especially on the international side of things. Doesn't have experience with that kind of racing at, at that distances. And, and that's been a grind. You want to talk about coronavirus. I mean, Jesse talked a little bit about this, about how hard it was not having her fiance with her. She's usually used to having her family come over at least once or, and um, this year not happening because of COVID-19 and Gus is a first year senior from Alaska and gets thrown in like here, here's gets kicked into the deep end or like actually trips, like goes, you know, it's, I, I picture that he's at like, you know, like at a swimming pool and there's those towers like there's like the three meter tower, the five meter, the, yeah, the 10 meter tower. And like some of his friends or somebody egged him on, like, go to the top, go to the 10 meter tower and just see. And as he's walking to the edge, just to like peek through the other side, somebody just pushes him right in and, and here you go, buddy. <laughs> and uh, so, so I, was, I really, really impressed um, with how Gus, Gus finished it off. And then, and then of course I thought as the hometown or like as a Canadian, um, Tony, Antoine Sear to sneak into the top 30 in a 50k skate. Um, I think there was a lot of people that wouldn't have expected that, especially late in the season. So it was a good way for him to finish it off on the men's side. And he came in 21st yesterday, I think. Yeah, I know. I know. We got to get to yesterday because 21st was a breakthrough performance by Tony. Men's side. Let me just say, I mean, I, I have a feeling that for the real skiers and athletes, the you know, the a race course like today's is you know viewed as kind of a novelty or something. But for the rest of us, it's extraordinary fun to watch. Uh, as people wend their way through towns and around corners. And I, I got to ski the Vassalop at two years ago, I guess. And nice. it reminded me a lot of that, you know, just that same uh, uh, sense of uh, skiing as something that exists in the real world, not something that's confined just to a, a highly groomed course someplace. And it was fun watching the, it was just like the Tour de France, watching the guys on the snowmobiles, you know, just about get, you know, overrun by the lead skiers and the whole thing was fun all the way yeah no for sure and I, I have to say with those snowmobiles i'm glad you brought that up two questions with the snowmobiles though one when i was racing because we, we back in my days it, we used to do a cortina de toblock stage it was 36k and the tour to ski point to point and nothing would pull my focus i i, I uh, not often, but there was a number of times that I started and I started second once or twice and I started fourth a couple times. So right at the front end of the race and like there's helicopters like flying super low, kicking so much snow in my face and it's so loud. And then there's that freaking snowmobile like for like 36K. And today watching those guys, I just couldn't. Um, and also it wrecks the track, right? I mean, all of us have cross country skied when some idiot is snowmobiled on the track and you're like, why'd you do that? And like, <laughs> now it's like a race for the world cup. And please, you know, we put, we put people on the moon in the sixties. 
can we please find a better way to film a 50k uh instead of just like the whine of a snowmobile and two you know that thing is not an electric snowmobile and why not so anyone that's been around snowmobiles knows how they, they stink to high heavens and now you're racing a 50k you're gassed and there's just this like high whine as like exhaust is just like blowing into your face it's ridiculous gassed. yes it's yeah yeah, it does seem like it's high time for someone to learn how to fly drone. Exactly. Like, right in front of the pack. Totally. Back. Totally. Or at, at worst, if you're going to drive a snowmobile, drive to the side and use an electric snowmobile. Please. <laughs> Why are we using gas-powered snowmobiles to, to film all these races? This is ridiculous. So that's that my one little rant there. And and on, for climate reasons, too. So yeah. There, and for the women, let's jump into the women since we're talking about Sunday right away. Again, like such an exciting top 10 all around. Diggins, talk about grit. I don't know if you saw that, Bill, but at the later stages of that race, Jesse's technique falls apart, but Jesse doesn't fall apart. She's still there. And you, you, you could see the contrast between, especially like Eb Anderson and Heidi were skiing beautifully, great angles, high hip positions. And Jesse was skiing like that early in the race and then, then started peg-legging a little bit, but still hung in there. And what an exciting finish. Heidi Wang of Norway gets her first win since 2018. So that's a long time coming. Um, and, and Diggins finishes it off by winning the overall World Cup globe with her performance. Daria Beatty of Canada, best distance finish for Canadian women this season on the distance side of things. And she's been had some near misses and really struggled this year, honestly. She's had a lot of races that it just things weren't working for. Um, her shape just wasn't where she wanted to be, but she's part of a, a team that they're trying to build. Eric Broughton's leading that, of course. Um, and with Sandrine, Catherine Stewart-Jones, Maya McIsaac-Jones, and Daria, you know, they're trying to build something. They're trying to build some momentum. Laura LeClaire was with, with for Canada, getting gaining some experience this whole season as well. Um, she didn't race today, but regardless, Daria, last race of the season, follows up a 21st place in the 10K Classic yesterday with a 15th place today. And nothing is more motivating coming into an Olympic season by coming 15th in your last race in a distance race, 30K skate with the big girls. And next year, Beijing, the Olympics, it's at 1800 meters and not everyone, not everyone can deliver and throw down a high altitude and people struggle. And if you struggle once, you can kind of cast it away. It's like, ah, I just had a bad day. But if you start having repeat performances that you're not happy with at high altitude, it gets in your head. And it gets psychological. And then you start believing like, I, I can't do it at altitude. I, my body doesn't work at altitude. But conversely, on the opposite side of that, Daria now leaves the Engadine Valley incredibly motivated for the training season, but also like bring on Beijing because now she knows when it comes to high, high altitude, she's better than most and has two of her best races of her career um, as, as evidence that it works. So I thought that was really fun. I wanted to just spend a quick uh, second highlighting that. I, I'll do, I want to just add one thing, which is that it's wonderful to watch Heidi Vang. There's someone who's one of the great cross country skiers who's ever been, but she's had her whole career with Marit Bjorgen and Teresa Johag out in front of her. Um, you Absolutely. Know, she's won some things, but she's never going to be the great, skier of her time because she just had the bad luck of you know, having Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, you know, at the same moment right around her. So there you are. Exactly. But yeah. So it's great to see her win. Terrific. 
One question to close out Sunday, and then we'll go back in time a little bit and hash out Saturday's race. But I, I think a lot of people, as, as Bill mentioned, enjoyed that race format. You know, the point to point, it's obviously from a production standpoint, there, there's more uh, investment in infrastructure, cameras, cables being laid. But is that something that could be incorporated more into the season? Or from your perspective, Devin, is it just too costly? I'm thinking they did do it last year once during the the tour of Scandinavia. Yeah, I know. And they do that once in a while. And for sure, it's a logistical... The pushback usually comes from the production company that's putting on the race, like you just said. Um, That's why Holman Colon has been kneecapped. You know, it used to be a 25K loop that you did twice back in the 1800s and and early 1900s. And then that got chopped down to a 16.7K loop. And then that held for quite quite many decades. And then that got kneecap to an 8.6 kilometer loop and then that's what we have today and and that's the production that's driving that it is and and you're right it is it is logistically tough but i you know what i i totally agree well at times it's a i find it like the early part of that race uh, because the menu just i guess it's because i've raced in the men's field my whole life and i just know the, the, the psychology that's going on it's like everyone's just like get me to like the 25k mark and then let's just start doing something especially on a flat course right but um, I agree. It is nice to break it up and, and try something out, try something different. And, um, you know, that Cortina Toblak race, while I it just like, ugh, I kind of hated it. I also kind of loved it because it, it, it was something to look forward to. And it is, uh, while it is, yeah, like kind of a sideshow, it's still real skiing. It's still, you're using normal cross-country ski techniques. They have had the Vassalopet as the World Cup. They have had the Berkebiner, the Norwegian Berkebiner as a World Cup. They've had the Marshialonga as a World Cup. Um, so they do have some precedent doing either the the famous Loppets um, and just making a World Cup one year. They haven't done that for a number of years now, which is probably good because now it's all double pulled. And um, anyway, we can leave that there. There's no production reason. I mean, th- this is why God invented drones. Um, exactly. No reason that you should not be able to do a great job of production. I agree. Uh, I agree. Drone relays. Like, Exactly. Even in the, uh, I mean, even on the, like, just even on the regular World Cup, I don't know why they're not flying drones instead of just watching people ski past the same, you know, here's the, we're, here we are at three kilometers, everybody coming up the same little hill. I agree. I just watched a thing on YouTube where someone was flying a drone through a bowling alley, down the, down the bowling alley, <laughs> through, the, through the pins into, you know. Yeah. So there's no reason you can't have them all through the woods getting great coverage of these guys no. and no fumes. Exactly. I agree. And and then because, because like we talked about during the world championships, Jason and I, when you have a championship level production with all the cables where you can follow the athletes and really give the fan a sense of the speed and the technical prowess as they're mocking up these hills and down these hills, it gives armchair fans like a real appreciation it's like holy like this is crazy impressive and i i i use home and colon as an example every year in the 50k and home and colon or at the world championships in 2011 as well the cable cam work of of nrk that produces that race there is just phenomenal because you're feeling you really feel like you're part of the race you're being pulled along by the speed and and you're absolutely right it, they have it, it's it's the future and they have to start filming it like that because it, it makes it more intimate for for a cross-country ski fan that maybe isn't like steeped in cross-country skiing to be able to feel it. And you know, the other sport that that would make a huge difference is mountain biking, like cross-country. 
Like cross country mountain biking is the worst thing to watch on TV unless Red Bull is, has the production in which they do more and more now. But like back in the days, like Mont St. Anne, the Mont St. Anne world cup in, in cross country mountain biking. I mean, I've, I've mountain biked that course. I've ran that course. I've been there to watch those events and like seeing how insane these professional mountain bikers are on these single track trails in forests that are very much like yours in Vermont there, uh, just, just a couple hundred kilometers North. It's impressive. And then you watch it on TV. Like you said, with these stationary cams, you just see these guys, they look like they're just kind of like grinding up a single track at like 12 kilometers an hour with their face, like, uh, uh, you know, like, and you're like, this sport's lame. But it's not if you can if you can follow with the action and get that side that side angle and follow the speed, uh, nothing blows your mind more. So I'd like to see more more races like that in the World Cup. I do, I would, but um, you know I, I think. But before we do that, I would really like to see Home and Cole Home and Cole and go back yeah. to the sixteen point seven k loop and and individual start. So if I'm going to pick a battle, I'd rather watch home and call an individual start on the, on the old loop with the tents the whole way around. Um, but yeah, for sure it, it does add something and it is cool. And I thought also for, for the Engadine Valley, um, the Engadine ski marathon, like I said, really famous skate race, uh, it, that's a loppet and, uh, they had to cancel it because of COVID-19 this year, but it, so it was really cool to show the beauty of the place for the TV audience uh, around the world, mostly Europe. Um, and highlight those small towns, like you said, because it is so much fun training in the Engadine and going through those towns and seeing it. And so I, I, it brought back a lot of memories for me to watch that. And I'm glad they did. It was cool. Saturday's racing. I mean, what, what would you touch upon? I mean, I, I have to be honest, you know, it, 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 I was really stoked to watch it from one standpoint was I'm sort of, as you know, Devin, uh, I love mountains and so I was like, I want to see the mountains. Oh, yeah. Right. And I thought the racing would be animated a little bit. Um, there were really, you know, when you look at the course profile, there, I think, were three climbs on that loop, but nothing super killer. No, and one um, one significant climb for sure. I, I am curious, like, what breaks apart a race like that on a course like that when it's not, like, in your face, brutal relative to other courses yeah and i think I, this is fun because i you know i was talking with alex a little bit about this before the race happened but uh, and then in watching it like what we had talked about just came to fruition you're coming from not sea level but oberstdorf can be can be considered sea level you're at a thousand meters or 1100 meters has very little effect uh you're not you're not acclimatizing whatsoever when you jump up from a thousand meters up to 1800 meters and we were curious. It's like, are we going to see people that are like really just like inc incredibly have incredible respect for the, for the altitude? Cause nobody is prepared for the altitude. No one's acclimatized. Cause they just came right from Oberstdorf, drove in the van three and a half, four hours, got to the Engadine Valley, got out for their first ski. They're like, <gasps> you know, it's COVID-19. No one's been able to not nobody. The Russians have done that. And some other teams have done some altitude training, but the vast majority of, of teams haven't, haven't been able to do any altitude training or very, very limited compared to what they normally would. And there's a lot of new athletes that don't have a lot of experience with altitude. Also, there's not that many times that races happen at 1800 meters at the fifth legal limit. There's a lot of races that happen around Davos altitude, 15, 1600 meters, but the, the, it's, it's harder on your body exponentially as, as, as it gets higher. 
And I saw in both the men's and the women's early in the race, the reason why it was a bit of a snooze fest is that the athletes, are they, they have major respect for the altitude. And they're like, man, if I take a, a flyer, if I take a risk here, it, it could, I could lose minutes. And the day after is a pursuit. So the, the time back you finished in that Saturday race is like your penalty for the Sunday race. And you, you desperately do not want to go out on that Sunday race completely by yourself, like three and a half minutes back because you took a risk at two and a half K of that 10 K for the women exploded at six K and lost three minutes because you, you can't recover at the high altitude. So, but you're right. Like it was especially, but, but it's not often I see that in the women's field where there's like respect, like real respect for the altitude. Cause usually it's just gun to tape annihilate from the women's side of things. Um, but in both the men's and the women's, I really was noticing that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that, and that changed the dynamic of the race. But that said, at least in the women's race, when we're coming into the closing kilometers, amazing move by Stupak. Um, a little questionable on that downhill, like out of the tracks, like the really late in the race where there's tracks groomed and she was outside the tracks, but then so did Heidi jumped out there. But anyways, Stupak was the one that animated that race for the women late in the race and, and broke it up a little bit, but you're right. You, we're used to seeing the women's field, especially where everyone is just Jesse Diggins it out there, like just going right to the basement from the first word go. And uh, I think it was the respect from the altitude that was the reason why we didn't see that on Saturday. Can I just add that Stupak, I, I'm really looking forward to watching her more, not just as a skier, she seems remarkably un-Russian in her, uh, yeah. you know, she actually seems to be enjoying herself immensely. And and she's picked up on, I mean, she's been taking lessons from Jessie because there she is grinning and dancing on the podium. And and uh, it's really fun to watch. Um, she's, I, I, I think she may be a great storyline in the years to come. She's Absolutely. more fun than most of the Russians. Absolutely. And, and, uh, I thought, I think tactically and, and technically and in classic as well. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And she did everything right to win that race on Saturday, which was fun to watch. Um, no question. And, and a huge day for the U S too on, on, uh, on Saturday, especially the next generation swerble, swerble. 12th place, 12th place to finish the, to finish the distance season like that, like in, in a 10 K classic that, that looks really good. I mean, swerble, grew up at high altitude so this yeah. is nothing new yep. for her just same with simi you know simi noah simi grew up in aspen uh, noah hoffman grew up in aspen colorado and then when we, when we get to any sort of like cross-country altitude simi and and uh, noah would just laugh because they're like this or this is an altitude <laughs> but um but uh so swerble but swerble had a beautiful performance and a number of the young american women had great performances like ko Catherine ogden had a great race again lockley was solid in classic especially um you know you had a lot of great 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 races diggins was awesome again like right up in there and yeah so she <clears throat> ran out of steam a little bit at the end but no one's raced as much as diggins this year in the women's field either and okay she doesn't get a podium in the last weekend of of, of the world cup but that, that's irrelevant at this point she did everything she needed to do to to secure the globe she she won the globe and and it's totally okay to, to run out of steam when you had had all that at the world championships especially but uh yeah. And then on the men's side of things, we just jump right to it. I mean, Tony, uh, again, 21st, the Canadian, uh, best race of his career. Awesome to see quite a boring race for most of it. Like you said, Jason, cause no one's, no one's taking any risks. That's because the altitude. I don't think I use the word boring though. I'll use it. I'll use it. <laughs> it is not much that's happening early. And then, but then Bolshinov's move to demo the field late in that race. That was a feats of strength. That was impressive. Cause it is light terrain. And he, 
you know, yeah, he got a little bit of a jump on Claybo on, on lighter terrain, but his double pulling after he got that gap. Put some time in. I mean, people that want to that take a clinic because, yeah, it, it was a perfectly timed attack. And Claybo is, I mean, I think he's the most beautiful skier in the world, technically. And I like how he skis. I like his fluidity and stuff. Like the Russian styles is just not for me necessarily, but he is a beautiful skier. And if you go back right when he made that gap bullshit off late in that race, and you see how he's double pulling, you see how he's recruiting his, his ab muscles, his stomach, his hips are in a high position. He's leading with the knees and he's just transferring that power so beautifully into the snow and, and gapping the best in the world on light terrain. There's not many people that can do that. And that was, that was something to be seen. Total non sequitur here, Bill, because I'm a huge Nick Palmgardner fan. I just, I kind of a fanboy a little bit. Do you, you know what I'm talking about, Devin? Yeah. yeah. Okay. He, I'm also a Grateful Dead fan. And I know he's really likes the Grateful Dead. Uh, and he also backcountry skis, blah, blah, blah. I'm obviously a fanboy. Does he ever get out on the skinny skis? Do you ever give him a sales pitch? That I don't know. I, I doubt it. You guys are exceptions, I think, in the uh, crossing back and forth easily between backcountry adventuring. Yeah, I don't understand that. Although I got to say, one of my fondest memories, uh, skiing memories ever is, what, remember, Devin, do you remember a guy named Ben Huseby? Yeah, oh yeah. He lives in town. <laughs> I once yeah. went up most of the way up uh, Mount Hood with him, and he continued on to the summit on his racing skis, and then turned around and came down from the summit on making turns on his racing skis. Um, I mean, he was, oh my God. he was a crazy person to begin with, but that's the, uh, you know, the, the, there's not that much crossover between, I don't, not, not enough between, you know, people who like to get out in the woods out deep into the mountains and people who like to uh, wear the spandex and uh, get on the tracks. I haven't heard that piece of Husaby lore. Really? That's, that's that's bold. That's impressive. That sounds like a Justin. That sounds like a Justin Wadsworth story. I could imagine Justin doing that. Hmm. Dang. And you know, Simi's going to do instead of just going out Mount Hood. Like Simi is just going to link up like every every tall mountain in the Western U.S. on his skinny skis because like no one is more of a mountain badass than Simi Hamilton. Like I remember once being no, no one in skiing cross country skiing anyway. I remember once uh, taking a hike with Simi's mom up. Uh, someplace around Aspen and looking out at some insane mountain in the distance, you know, just, and she's, Oh yeah, that's where Simi went, went by himself on his ninth birthday. He, you know, on skis up and down that thing just for fun. Cause he, you know, it was his birthday and he wanted to celebrate. And I was like, okay. Um, yeah. He's, no, for- he's the exact opposite. Simi's uh, Simi's someone who really, I think, uh, hearts mostly in the high mountains in the back country, but his body was just so, uh, designed for going fast on skis that it would have been a shame not to do it. And uh, I, 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 you know, it's fun to, it's fun to not be, an, a, for those of us who aren't real athletes to occasionally get to see great athletes up close. And I remember once watching being at West Yellowstone with the Middlebury college team when Simi was a kid and watching him, they were just practicing starts, skate starts, you know, 15, 10, 15, 20 meters uh, over and over and over again. And, you know, most people, when they try to go really fast, they, that's, you know, they, you just flail some, your form starts to come apart. And it was the most remarkable thing to watch him because the harder and faster he went, the more his form came together, the more streamlined and efficient and quiet 
uh, he got, the faster he went. And I remember thinking that's what real, uh, I mean, that kind of proprioception and that kind of um, grace, that's what a really, you know, off the charts athlete looks like. And, and yeah. I've never forgotten that just short no. moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Simi is, uh, Simi is a beautiful tech technician. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, yeah, I've witnessed that a number of times, especially like, yeah, not just in those sprint starts, which is crazy. Cause that's just so much power and he's putting it all in the right directions, but also in like a two minute, three minute intensity session or interval, sorry, where, you know, like it's really high power and Simi can make it look like he's not even going hard. Simi but you take a yeah, he looks in control and smooth and the angles, it's impressive. It looks like he's not he's going he's working half as hard as the people around him that's going the same pace. There is a beautiful grace to it. It's really yeah. he's been it's been a great privilege to watch him and Sophie both. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's a great segue for Sophie Caldwell because I think I, so Sophie called, I, you know, I'm going to be really curious because it's, it's a loss for, for the U S team, of course, but they've, they've, Matt has done such a wonderful job. So is Grover. So is Cork. So is fish, the whole staff at USSA and the coaches that came before them to, uh, to, to rebuild the culture and have a supportive culture like they have now. Um, that said, Jesse remains. And now, you know, you've lost Keekin a couple of years ago and now you've lost Sadie and, and now losing Sophie and, and, um, Sophie Caldwell is one athlete that I am, yeah, I, I'm impressed with, with most of them. They're all great people. We spent a lot of time together um, just because we're both North American and travel had the same life, but, but I think Sophie Caldwell. Um, yeah. I don't want to say more than most cause it's all in a different way, but the leadership qualities of Sophie that I think might not shine through to someone that isn't close to the, as close to the project she has this quiet confidence that I have not seen in very many athletes in my, in my career. And not only that, she's incredibly kind. She's incredibly caring. She doesn't take up a lot of space, which you might think is like, isn't that not, is that, is that good? Is that not good? But when you think that you're traveling the world for months on end, having someone that is so kind, so caring, doesn't take a lot of real estate, but when she talks, when she says something, everyone listens because it, it's come. She's also incredibly bright, and she's been a real leader for that U.S. The, that U.S. team in the wake of of uh, Keegan stepping away, and not just on her results. I mean, yes, she's a World Cup winner. She multiple World Cup podiums. She was in the final in in Sochi at the Olympic Games. Uh, you know, she's she's an absolutely accomplished athlete. But that's not that's not what's going to be missed. I think on that team. And the other thing, one last thing with Sophie that I'm just so impressed with is in her, when she was coming up through the ranks, um, it's changed now, which is good. But, but, but when she did, she, she decided, and she, she had the conviction that she's like, no, I'm going to go to Dartmouth and I'm going to get my university degree. She was a huge talent. That was not something that was done. And it, it, it hasn't shown to work that well, to be perfectly honest in the past that going and racing at college level, if you really wanted to win a world cup. And again, most Canadians and most Americans, there's just, we don't have this rich history of world cup winners going back, you know, hundred years, but Sophie wanted to be a great skier, but she saw this opportunity to go to a great school like Dartmouth and she went and, you know, against 
against judgment, not against judgment, sorry, but against like the recommendations of some people in American skiing that thought she should just go and race professional. And she's like, no, I, I want to get a university education. I also want to have that college experience and make those connections and grow. She did. She came back and she proved that you can go to American college, have a good time, like by building those connections and, and expanding your life. Uh, through knowledge, yeah, but also also what it means to be a, a college student and athlete and come back and win at the international level and look who has been able to follow in the footsteps of that and who continues to follow in the footsteps of that. You know, you see Ben Ogden is going to university. Luke Yeager is going to university. There's a lot of young guns that are going to university and they believe, Lauchley, great example, fantastic fifth at under 23s. She's going to Middlebury um, and they believe that this is a path to also competing at the international level. And that's Sophie Caldwell to thank on that. I really believe that. And I think that's impressive. And then also one last thing with her training, you know, <clears throat> people don't really know that with, with um, how like altitude, what she did for training. Keegan was a crazy hard worker, put it on crazy hours, like really given her that that's the Alaskan way. Really. <laughs> Jesse also is like, trains an immense amount and like hard and it's really impressive but Sophie took the time to learn and what works for me she had great people helping her out like Matt Whitcomb and other coaches as well but she had the conviction and leadership to say like this is what works for me and I'm going to quietly do what I believe as well as supporting my teammates it's it's, it's very very rare to find teammates like Sophie Caldwell so all the best to her she's she's fantastic great, great serene champion and absolutely description of her is right and i will i gotta say it's one of these cases um maybe not unlike you and your wife uh where it's going to be worth uh fighting climate change and keeping winter alive so we can see what simi and sophie's offspring can do on the uh i mean uh, you know not to be a, a genetic determinist here but there's there should be some there should be some good skiing genes uh passing down especially technically you have two of the most beautiful skiers in the U S technically. And, um, <clears throat> not that Simi was a bad classic skier. He's a good classic skier too, but I would say Simi's skate technique was, was, um, where, where's, where he earned his keep. And, and Sophie's classic technique is just absolutely a thing of beauty. So yeah, when you combine those together, it's going to be pretty fun. It's going to be pretty fun to watch. But. I'm not sure what, what gene exactly, uh, classic technique is carried on, but, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're, they've, they've both done it in just the right spirit and in just the right ways. And though it's sad that they were in the hotel room for the last race of their career, I will say that um, I thought that Simi, when, when uh, Simi and, and Gus had that uh, tough sprint relay at uh, world championships where they missed the tag and things, but then Simi wrote something afterwards that was so strong and nice. Um, uh, just about the fact that, that the U.S. men were going to do great things going forward and he wasn't, wouldn't be on those teams, but that, that, you know, that he felt a part of it anyway. I mean, that's the right spirit, the way that you've identified Devin over the years, just how the Americans have learned how to do this in a, in a good way. Absolutely. Yeah, that that's the biggest thing for me is like I I obviously have no skin in the game, but I have to reach out to them most often after a good race, but sometimes after a crappy race, 
And those are two individuals, and they're not alone, but those are two individuals who are, they're always kind. And so from my perspective and how I have to deal with people in the sport, I've always appreciated that about them. Anyway, that's one thing I'll miss. Well, I just want to say at the, since we're at the end of the season, and I just want to really thank you guys for a uh, terrific year of commentary and all of this. It's great fun to watch, uh, you know, both my uh, daughter and son-in-law make their livings doing podcasts um, and really, really high-end stuff. Um, but, really? So I, so I listen to a lot of them, but you guys have managed to bring uh, just the right combination of expertise and enthusiasm. And between those two things, I mean, that's been the, the joy of it all year. So from all sorts of people who've been listening, I think, with uh, great appreciation, many, many thanks for, for, for uh, taking the time every week to do this. It really uh, adds a whole dimension of pleasure to it for, for a lot of us. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. That means a lot. That means a ton coming from you. And it's, um, sorry to our listeners that it's steeped in scrappiness, but that's just kind of our charm, baby. <laughs> that is our charm. It's just at the end of the day where I have to like watch races and then write up races and write captions. <laughs> this is the thing people don't see. Writing the captions in photos, it just drives me crazy. <laughs> It just, I'm like, oh my God. And I love the Nordic Focus guys. I mean, those dudes are the best. Federico, I worship him. He's great. But that said, at the end of the day, I'm like, let's just wing it, Devin. Yeah, that's what we do. But you know what? AI will take, AI should take take uh, take that role from the captioning photos uh, sometime soon. And as for our long-winded tangents, they're here to stay. So just buckle they're up or fast forward. Yeah, yep. <laughs> Well, thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Bill. Thank really appreciate it. All right. Everyone yeah. have a great rest of your... It's Sunday. It's Is it not Monday there yet, Devin, right? No, it's still... It's done. Oh, yeah. It's still Sunday. Okay. It feels... Who knows what day it is? It's... Uh, no, it's Sunday. It's Sunday evening. So back to... Last race. I'm so excited. Yeah. Congratulations, Jason. Yeah, By the thanks. time you come back next year, Devin, you'll be a full-fledged physiotherapist with... A- Absolutely not. <laughs> If 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 I if I if I I'm a I'm a sucker for punishment. If I if I if I achieve my dreams and goals, I'll be starting medical school, which is six years, and that'll be all in Norwegian. So I'll come back next year with um, whew, this, the my cortisol levels and stress levels will be through the roof. But um, you know, I, I love cross country skiing. It's been a fun project, and and we'll. I don't think we'll go totally radio silence because Jason and I have a few little odds and ends that I think we can we can uh, keep touching base through at least through the spring. And um, but thanks a lot to everybody that's listened along. The racing yeah, part of this you. podcast is over for now, but um, we'll be back next fall and uh, breaking it all down. Yeah, and Jason can finally get out backcountry skiing. <laughs> no, I'm gonna. I I had a great day on. Th- well, I sent you a photo. Yeah, I, I was amazing. Very God, good was amazing. Day You got to say hi well. to Zoe too. uh, I will. I will. I will. Take care, guys. All right. Thanks, folks. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Bill. We'll link to his New Yorker article on Jesse Diggins. And if you've listened to the podcast at all this race season, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you.